Well, my butt may be dumb, but I ain't no dumb butt. Welcome to Films Lit. It's <laughs> a great line. The podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny. He, him. I'm the self-appointed film expert. And I'm Laura. She, her. And I'm the self-appointed expert literature amen to that we've got another doozy of an episode coming up now this is our first tarantino is it movie on the pod just because he normally writes original screenplays it's very rare for tarantino to adapt something does he have anything else adapted from a book in fact off the top of my head I think so. I don't know if Death Proof was based on a short story from Robert Rodriguez. But other than that, yeah, this is his one and only adaptation. So makes sense that this is the first Tarantino. Yeah. But I'm going to say something a little controversial. Are you ready? Yeah. I think Tarantino. I think the guy can write. (sighs) Yeah. And... He's not a bad director, either. I completely agree. And today on the pod, we are covering Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch, adapted by Quentin Tarantino in 1997 into the movie Jackie Brown. Heck yes. Known as the forgotten Tarantino movie because when people rank Tarantino, they normally put Pulp Fiction first or Inglorious Bastards first. And Jackie Brown seems to be lower on the list and i think it's because it's his most understated it's his least tarantino yeah Yeah, definitely his least stylized his it's not as long as once upon a time in hollywood but But it it is long it it is long and it feels dare i say even slower than that movie Mm -hmm. not in a bad way we'll get we'll get into this but not in a bad way it is just it's tarantino's most earnest most mature most sweet uh this is probably his only really like sweet good-hearted movie next to once upon a time in hollywood well and spoilers i do not like pulp fiction i don't know if we've talked about that on the podcast yet because it's not based on a book but Mm -hmm. i really did not like that movie i actually watched it on your recommendation almost right after we started dating because i think when we started dating you were like okay so here's the deal if we're gonna go any further you have to watch these movies (laughs) right didn't you have a list of demands uh, yes yeah in order for to get to date number three and the first one was boogie nights and i fucking hated that and then i watched pulp fiction and i was like oh good this guy's insane you need to slow down because (laughs) a big portion of our listenership is cinephiles and you just did the one-two punch of saying you didn't like Pulp Fiction and Boogie Nights, arguably the most important movies so of the 90s. I guess you just backed yourself in a corner and said maybe they're male listeners because I I don't know. I no, lot, do I, you think a lot of female or non gender non-binary people like Boogie Nights and Pulp Fiction? Um, I will say, I mean, they're more film bro-centric for sure. But, I mean, I would... Just say as a blanket statement for all cinephiles, it doesn't matter your sex. But Boogie Nights? I don't know. I'm yes. sorry. I just, I really had a hard time with both of those movies. Whatever. We're not, we're not discussing them. But when I saw this, I was like, okay, this, like, why is this a forgotten Tarantino movie? Because I loved it. I had such a good time. And especially because like, again, spoiler alert, I didn't love the book. Mm-hmm. So the way that he punched this up is oh, yeah. really uh, rum punched it up. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it's really impressive. I I I came away from this movie saying I got to rework my Tarantino rankings. Tarantino who has been a little problematic here and there in the past with his movies. Basically, his movie version of Rum Punch is the correct woke version of the novel, would you say? Not in an in an annoying way, but it takes all the problematic parts that you know of the novel that are super problematic today but this movie was made in 97 so it's actually pretty progressive yeah um i think i know exactly why it's forgotten is because 
Tarantino, so he broke out with writing, directing Reservoir Dogs. So that was his big movie, but that was still an indie. Pulp Fiction was his opus, and that made him a household name. He kind of already was a household name with Reservoir Dogs, but Pulp Fiction is Pulp Fiction. I mean, it's Pulp Fiction. It's its own verb. To, <laughs> so now this is where I'll bring in gender, where I kind of reject your earlier argument that you know, Boogie Nights, Pulp Fiction are. You I'll know, take a survey, <laughs> and I'll. Uh, I mean, because I'm interested. I'm just interested to know. Well, I would say, here's where I agree with you. I th- I'm not saying those films are catered towards males. I think that males overwhelmingly like those movies more than women. But I've heard, I know plenty of my fellow film majors who are women who love those films. That's, I mean, that's fair, and I'm 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 not trying to make a blanket statement. I just. Yes. Okay. I, I, there's just yeah. I don't know. But I just where don't know where I'm going with this? Why people love those movies? But where I think, oh my goodness, I'm I'm, I'm sweating. <laughs> really I'm, him up. I'm so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> like not even joking. Um, oh. But where I think I'll bring sex into it is that Pulp Fiction came out, and all the film bros in college, like me, if if Pulp Fiction came out when I was in college, I would have loved it. I mean, I love I would love it at any age, but People lined up in droves, film bros did, for Jackie Brown, expecting another Pulp Fiction. A a super fast-paced, ultra-violent, ultra-sexy, ultra-provocative. People went in expecting a super raunchy, explicit movie. And Jackie Brown, I, I just, you know, watching this movie, you gain so much respect for Tarantino because coming off of Pulp Fiction, he could do another one of those. But instead, he makes a super serious, mature, slow as molasses. I mean, this movie is in no hurry. And to quote the late, great Roger Ebert, he said, Jackie Brown is about the process, not the payoff. This is a film that's too good to be in a hurry. All right, rest in peace, Roger. I yeah. Mean, yeah, why don't we just stop the podcast there because he analyzed it perfectly. This is a movie where the opening 25 minutes, save for the title sequence, focuses on a different character, not the main character. So the main character is Jackie Brown. But the opening, the opening act of the movie is about Ordell. And that is about as brave as you can get for a two and a half hour crime caper to yeah. just sideline your character like that. Because it's all about the buildup. It's all about the development and all about the setup. Why I like this movie more than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is while that movie's well made, it is a hangout movie. It's aimless. This movie has a plot. Yeah. While it is slow, it is not aimless. It's very much about character development, but also about A to B. It's a fun crime caper. It's so. smart, too. It, it's it's really smart. And the, another reason why the movie works is the characters are smart, too. Right, right. Everyone in this movie is is smart, save for maybe the, the dumb cop that's with Michael Keaton. Um, the, <laughs> like, yeah, that mustached guy. But and everyone's everyone's really smart. Yeah, even Melanie. Yes. Who's, who's literally set up to be dumb. The reason she, spoilers, ends up murdered is because she's too smart. There's a line that Samuel L. Jackson said, like, you can't always count on Melanie, but you can always count on Melanie to be Melanie. And right. that right there is a total underestimation of who Melanie is. Because at the very end... He could not count on Melanie to be Melanie because he underestimated her. So like. Or Melanie was being Melanie by she knew exactly how to get under Robert De Niro's character's skin. But she did it a little bit too well <laughs> and uh, to yeah. end, up her, end up getting. That's fair. But yeah, anyway. And, and I think another comment that I have on that, too, is my biggest frustration or one of my biggest frustrations with the book is that people aren't. I don't think the book is as smartly written. I think it underestimates characters also. And that just kind of dumbs them down and took a lot of character away from the characters. Yeah. (laughs) Development away from the characters. And I think that the book really, really, really suffered because of that. Yeah. Well, let's get into the analysis. But first, before that, (laughs) our journeys with Jackie Brown and Rum Punch. So go ahead, Laura. Yeah, I'll make this easy. I had never read the book, never read the movie. 
finished the book a couple nights ago and it was hard to get through. <laughs> it is really slow, I think. I don't think that there's a lot of payoff for any of it because mm -hmm. I don't think that the buildup is done well. I, like structurally, I don't think it's well written. I was really disappointed, but I had heard that you really liked Jackie Brown. You've been talking it up for a couple of years. Yeah. And you had even bought the soundtrack on CD. Shout out to our local physical media shop, CD Trader. Go pick up some super good deals there. I wish that they would sponsor us. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but they're a great shop, so go support them. They're in the valley. Um, Tarzana. In Tarzana. <laughs> they came all the way from Tarzana. Graduate reference. All right, continue. I say it all the time. It's one of my favorite lines from that movie. Um, so yeah, uh, we picked up the CD. I've, re I've really enjoyed listening to the soundtrack for a while, but as soon as we turned on the DVD menu, Sissy Strut by The Meters came on, and my dad and I looked at each other and we were like, <gasps> Hey, I was there. I was there too. Well, I know, I know, but we're like obsessed with this song. My dad and I play it literally on repeat. It's in another round, which won Best International Film last year at the Oscars. And it's such a good movie, but it's played at this perfect moment. So then I, I kind of went like, oh, duh, like that's also in this movie. And so immediately I loved it. We uh -huh. started the movie and I fell in love. I think this is a super watertight film. I'm going to watch it again probably soon. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to go through your Tarantino rankings later, since we'll probably never get to talk about that since like, I don't yeah. know if any other ones are on here. But again, my one of my first thoughts when we turn it off is like, I got to go reshuffle my rankings of his films because this shot to the top. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. So anyway, take it away. <laughs> yeah. So as I alluded to earlier, this being the forgotten Tarantino film, I hadn't seen it until it came on Netflix in 2019. And in fact, I saw it in North Dakota when we did our trip there in the summer of 19. And like a lot of people, you watch it and you think, wow, why is this not rated among his best? Yeah. This, this belongs up there. This doesn't belong on the bottom of the list. Most of Tarantino's films are great, save for a few. Hateful Eight. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in the rankings. Um, a lot of people love that film. Anyways, we're pissing a lot of people off today. <laughs> we are triggering people like crazy. But I saw it. I loved it. I tried to get a hold of the audiobook for Rum Punch. But there is no audiobook recording of this book anywhere I on YouTube, that, yeah. at the library, on Audible, Audible on on anything. Oh. There, on Libby, there. Libby, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, there's no. It doesn't exist. And basically, I've gotten into a rhythm with this podcast where I listen to audiobooks as I'm closing up at my studio. So that's how I listen to books. That's how I consume literature. I, I don't read, um, but I, it's not that I don't have the time. Well, I don't have the time because on the weekends we're recording this podcast yeah. <laughs> and doing stuff. So, yeah. And I tend to read when Danny's at work until 9 p.m. So yeah. I've got plenty of time. <laughs> yeah. So I did not read the book, but I researched a lot about it. But Laura will be our book expert. As, as she, stated. As stated at the beginning. At the top of the episode. You'll handle the book. I'll handle... Well, we'll both handle the movie because we both watched it. Yep, that's my journey as well. So I watched it for the second time last night. Loved it in equal measure. I think, obviously, Pam Greer is excellent. So good. But also Robert Forrester. Rest in peace, Robert Forrester. He plays Max Cherry, the bail bondsman. Nominated. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor. The film's only... Oscar nomination. Can you believe that? Can you take us back to 1997 to remind us what was nominated for like Best Picture, though? So it would be for the Osc the 98 Oscars. So for Best Supporting, Robert Forster was up against Robin Williams for Good Will Hunting. Okay. Well, oh, I and Burt Reynolds and Boogie Night. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. So Boogie Nights was nominated for a bunch. And Anthony Hopkins and Amistad. Greg Kinnear, as good as it gets. So, yeah, Robin Williams, Goodwill Hunting. That's that's a great one. Yeah, I 
understand his loss there. And R.I.P. Robin Williams, too. Yeah. But let's see. Let's go to the films. Oh, Titanic, 97. Yeah, that Titanic was it. Titanic came out in 90. Of course. Titanic, of yeah. Of course. So, yeah, and James Cameron won Best Director. But Tarantino wasn't nominated for Best Director. Yeah. See, that's a shame because, of course, everybody knows what Titanic is at this point. But is it as enduring as Jackie Brown thematically? I don't know. Enduring thematically? Ti- well, Titanic is such a Titanic, but to use the pun, picture that it kind of transcends. It's like Pulp Fiction where it's like, it's not even a movie anymore. It's just its own entity. But 98, the... Right, but it's kind of like a, a punched up love story that's very dramatic. Oh, I would say Jackie so, Brown is objectively much better than Titanic. Right, that's why I said enduring thematically. Yes, okay. Like, so no. It's just it's a bummer, you know, because like where would I rank Titanic? Not even in my top hundred movies. Does this make my top hundred movie list? Maybe I have to go back to it. <laughs> yeah. So the movies nominated that year for Best Picture were Titanic, As Good as It Gets, Goodwill Hunting, L.A. Confidential, and The Full Monty. Haven't seen The Full Monty. Neither have I. Uh, as good as it gets. Ugh, I mean, whatever. Uh, L.A. Confidential, Goodwill Hunting. I get. But yeah, Jackie Brown could have snuck in there, especially after Pulp Fiction was such a critical darling. I mean, it won Best Screenplay. It lost Best Picture infamously to Forrest Gump. Yeah, but, again, it's same kind of thing where Forrest Gump is like an entity of itself. Yeah. But, but Pulp Fiction is like probably a better written and directed film. Yes. I, I can say that much for it. Exactly. So yeah, Pulp Fiction but, was nominated for so much, only won a handful of Oscars. But yeah, Jackie Brown won nomination. So another thing that I just noticed when you were looking that up is that the best picture category had five films under it. Yes. How many are eligible in general? Has that ever, has there ever, ever been a cap or, because I feel like yeah. usually five movies Well, is... five was the cap until uh, 2010. Okay. Because The Dark Knight came out in 2008 and in 2009, it was not up for best picture and everyone freaked out because it clearly, the consensus was like, this best is the picture. best film <laughs> yeah. and it wasn't. And the reasoning behind that was like, okay, we need to expand the number of Best Picture nominees because The Dark Knight clearly was the sixth spot and it didn't make it. So now the cap is 10 films, but since 2010, there have never been 10 films nominated, only eight or nine. But this just in for the upcoming Academy Awards they changed the rule again, so now they have to nominate 10 films. Do you like how I teed you up? Yes, <laughs> thank that, you. For that whole thing. So for yeah. yeah, this year's Oscars, the 2022 Oscars, there will be 10 films no matter what. Nominated. And that's great because that will hopefully let possibly an international film yeah. that we've been discussing recently, Drive Dry- My Car, yeah. sneak in there too if it's not a consensus movie then maybe it'll be able to sneak in with exactly. 10 nominations so anyway that's just a little fun oscar history yeah background for you we're so excited to be hosting the oscars right up the road from us again yes we are <laughs> your hosts up. <laughs> they haven't announced a host yet for the actual ceremony oh that's right i read an article that I thought was saying that Tim Robinson was going to host. And I freaked. I didn't even read the article, which is very uncharacteristic for me. And then I sent it to Danny. I was like, oh my God, I like lost my shit. And then Could he was you like, imagine if he was Tim like, Robinson? <laughs> he was like, this is an opinion piece. And I was like, mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're right. They haven't announced it, but yeah. Tim Robinson, <laughs> I'm pulling for Tim Robinson. <laughs> yeah. Or Wallace Shawn. Anyways, let's go to the analysis. So give us some background on the book, if you may. Yeah, the book is very similar to the movie. I don't think that there are very many changes that I would even highlight. There are even some lines. I I like blew Danny's mind when we were watching it because I quoted a couple people on the nose and he was like, wait a minute, that's actually what they said. And I'm like, yeah, it's in the book. Yeah. (laughs) Remember I read that? Yeah, yeah. So, but one one of the greatest lines that's in there 
it's between Jackie and Max Cherry. So the main character, who's the flight attendant, and Max Cherry, who's the Bonds writer. Bond writer? Bail Bonds. Bail Bonds Bonds writer. (laughs) Barry Bond, bail writer. (laughs) Yeah, James Bond, bail Bonds. James Bond, Barry Bond, bail writer. Yep. (laughs) Um, So she goes, you know, she pulls up in this fantastic BMW. And he's like, oh, like, I didn't know... You bought a new car and she's like, oh, it's Ordell's. Haven't you borrowed a car from a friend before? And he goes, not after they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great line. Um, so yeah. was Tarantino's for years. No, that's <laughs> that's Elmore Leonard's. That's an Elmore Leonard original. Yeah. But so again, one to one, I really don't think that there's anything to highlight that's different other than the fact that it's dry. It's written in some pretty racist dialect mm-hmm. uh that i i just didn't like i think it i think it takes away from the narrative and there are pretty clear racial lines between like who are the good guys and who are the bad guys which i think is silly and for example Jackie Brown whose name is Jackie Burke in the book is a white lady. And I think that by making her a black character, a black woman in the movie, underlines how she's been disenfranchised consistently in her life, not only because she's a woman, but also because of her color. And that adds an extra level of understanding for the audience. Because again, there's just not, I think I said this at the top of the episode, but there's really poor character development in the book. Like you kind of understand that the characters are desperate, but you don't really get that. Like why? Other than the fact that they're just, they're kind of, they're older and they're sick of working. That's kind of it. And, and Max Cherry has been divorced in the book. So he's kind of, you know, lovesick in a way, but also kind of hardened because he's around criminals a lot. But other than that, that's kind of all you get. And I just really enjoy the fact that they added this extra burden for Jackie that, again, she's been disenfranchised not only because she's a woman, but also because she's black and she's just not taken seriously by anybody. Yeah. So that adds that extra, like, the extra stakes, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is like, she's just made no more interesting character and someone that you can really relate to, even if you're not black. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the movie as a whole is about people who are simply over it and just want to catch a break. Yeah, and who haven't been able to catch a break. Oh, I guess the only other like kind of major thing is that the book takes place in South Florida. And the movie, I mean, you're gonna get me. When you transplant a story from South Florida and put it into LA, I mean, come on, I'm gonna love it. You yeah, know me? It, it makes <laughs> sense because the story is all about moving from location to location to location. And there's no more of a sprawling city than L.A. I mean, it's a joke at this point how far L.A. reaches and how there are literal cities within this city. Like, it's not like New York where it's a a place. L.A. is just Southern California. And then there's San Diego. To your point, like the Bronx, like a lot of the boroughs have their own zip codes. Like there are a lot of zip codes in L.A., but like Hollywood has like 50 zip codes. (laughs) It's like still part. She's not joking. It it does. Yeah. yeah, And it's still part of Los Angeles proper. Like we don't write Hollywood, California when we write our address we write los angeles california yeah so they go from torrance to compton to el segundo where lax is located to hollywood they're all over the place do they even get to the valley at, at some point or maybe i'm you know i maybe I'm think of i a... think so i can't oh no the mall isn't in the valley torrance right? it's in torrance oh okay gotcha um, so maybe i'm thinking of a paul thomas anderson movie maybe i'm conflating a little bit but the point is you're totally right it's about distance it's about oh and they go downtown yeah which is also part of los angeles so like you were saying it's it's a it's a travel movie it's an intrigue movie and i think the fact that they used real places in los angeles really also grounded it for me yeah because i've been to all those places del amo mall in torrance lax 
you know, dive bars in downtown or Hollywood, Hollywood, stuff like that. It's so relatable to someone. I think that even made me enjoy the movie even more. (laughs) Yeah. Certainly being here for six years, I recognized a bunch of the places. Oh, and there's another connection to The Graduate. Because the beginning of the movie, That's we right. see Jackie Brown on a moving walkway in Los Angeles. Um, and by the way, they they do reverse the way that she's entering LAX mm-hmm. from the way that Ben Braddock is exiting LAX. Super important detail because yeah. you wouldn't be going from right to left if you were exiting and she's entering. So she's going right to left. Oh, wait, I switched those around, but... Whatever. She's entering through she's- the exit. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the point is she's shuttled across the mosaic. That's one of the like exits through us through yes. LAX. Um the moving walkway is no longer there. But yeah. <laughs> but that hallway still is, so it's very fun. That's a shout out to the graduate, and there's also a scene like that in Mad Men. So so many connections to Mad Men, <laughs> this podcast. <You've, laughs> oh, sorry. Am I bringing up Mad Men? Any again? chance you get. But, I mean, it's valid. Mad Men has a lot of allusions to pop culture. Yeah, I think making her black adds to the stakes because as the ATF agents present to her, you're not just a person with a past criminal record. You are... A black woman, a woman in, of color, in yeah. in America with a prior offense, working the only job you can work, which is the shittiest airline possible. Right. So if you don't cooperate with us, then obviously you are gonna go to jail forever, or you're gonna get murdered by Ordell. Well, and that's not right. I mean, that's literally presented to her. By the cops. Right. That they're like, we know your situation. Listen, you're black and you don't have any options unless you cooperate with us. That's that's a really intense platter to right. serve us really early in the movie. Yeah, and that's why Tarantino is such a brilliant writer, because it makes sense for these cops to be telling this to her because they're trying to intimidate her to cooperate. But it also is direct exposition to the audience presenting the stakes and then from there you understand why jackie brown does what she does which is basically manipulate everyone around her to at the end of the day end up with half a million dollars of course she gave a little bit of that money to max cherry because he was her partner but even then she was kind of working him a little bit but not so much that she was betraying him Mm -hmm. but she still was you know the hashtag independent girl boss slay power well i think snaps to your point i think if it had gone any other way she would have possibly screwed max cherry to get what she wanted Mm -hmm. and i think to further your point too tarantino really blashes the reality on the audience about black women's plight especially in larger cities uh by when jackie is she's not sentenced she's she has her, her she has her court hearing and she appears in a line of only women of color walking into the jail the holding mm-hmm. cell yeah. basically like mm-hmm. that that image is extremely clear like this is the plight <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're picked up by the police and even that one scene is more insightful than anything we get in the book because again i feel like elmore leonard even if it was subconsciously he drew very clear lines about like the black characters are these bad people who trade guns and, you know, are doing what they need to to get ahead and get money. And the white characters are trying to do their 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 very best, mm-hmm. right? To get through. And but they don't turn to crime as much. You know what I mean? So like yes. again, even if that's subconscious, I think Tarantino has a little bit more insight by saying like that is leveraged against Jackie intentionally. Right. Yes. Completely agreed. Now that we're on the subject of Jackie Brown, the character, we got to talk about Pam Greer. 
So what else is she in? Yeah, sorry. I exactly. Mean, I, exactly. I interrupted you, but she's incredible. In Tarantino this. has made a career out of turning unknown actors into stars. Mm -hmm. So like Christoph Waltz, for example. Yeah. Or Steve Buscemi in Reservoir Dogs. He kind of was not working a lot. And then after that movie, he blew up. And also resurrecting the careers of people. So in Pulp Fiction, John Travolta is in that movie, one of the main characters. And his career was dying. He blew up with Grease, right? And all those movies. And Saturday Night Fever. Right. But by 94, he was not getting anything. And all of a sudden, he stars in Pulp Fiction, the biggest movie next to Forrest Gump um, of, of that year. Shawshank Redemption also came out that year, but that wasn't popular till later. Anyways, he blew up again, and his career was revived. Well, it's so funny because he wasn't even that old in '94. Yes, like exactly. <laughs> yeah. So Pam Greer starred in a bunch of the black exploitation movies oh, of yeah. the '70s and '80s. She also was a model, if you could <laughs> believe that. Mm -hmm. um, stunning, mm -hmm. and her career was. On the down and out. And what, she was probably like 30, because that's what happens when, women right. turn, when actors turn 30. Yes. <laughs> women actors. Yes. Turn. So, which is why it's all the more disappointing that she didn't blow up after this movie. I mean, she was recognized and lauded for this. Everyone thought it was a snub that she didn't make Best Actress that year. And maybe she, hey, maybe she didn't want to have a thriving career after this. Maybe she settled down. Who mm -hmm. knows? But yeah. her career didn't really take off in the way that other actors' careers have taken off after they star in a Tarantino movie, which is a shame. Yeah, um, she's so good. But she is incredible, certainly believable. She was around the same age, so she was 40 years old playing a 44-year-old. So, mm -hmm. I mean, right around there. And I, I like that part of her character is that she she knows she's attractive, and mm -hmm. she uses that to her advantage. In movies, when they take these beautiful A-listers and they try to quote-unquote ugly them down, by either putting like not a lot of makeup on them or you know messing up their hair it's so obvious it's like that that's still a beautiful celebrity but we talked about this in don't look up yes with what they did with yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio's character yeah a big part of yeah because when don't look up came out the trailers I'm like no one's gonna believe Leonardo DiCaprio is this midwestern schlubby scientist mm -hmm. but in that movie the whole joke is that he's attractive and everyone thinks he's hot and he doesn't he doesn't have the awareness or the confidence right. to meet that. So but where Jackie Brown does and she's a compelling character because she outsmarts yeah. everyone. And my favorite moment of the film actually is not with Jackie Brown herself. It's after when Lewis and Ordell are driving away from the mall, realizing that the bag they have only has about $40,000 in it. Yeah. And Ordell tells Lewis to pull over to the side. And he has a moment where he's thinking. He's figuring it out. Yeah. And the camera slowly zooms in on him. You see the veins slowly pop out of Ordell's forehead. And it's a quiet moment. He's sitting there just realizing that he has lost half a million dollars and Tarantino just holds the shot. And then after a minute of silence, Ordell looks up and says, it's Jackie Brown. And yeah. it's exactly right. You know that you know that he's aware that Jackie Brown is smart enough to pull something like this off. And that's one of the pleasures of the movie. Everyone is smart, but whoever is smartest will live yeah. and will come out on top. With Absolutely. The money. And again, another thing that I think is so important about the fact that they made her character a black woman is that we can see so clearly her ability to code switch and that ability for her to pull all of these strings. There are so many times in the movie where you see cuts where she's the only consistent actor in the scene. And then it cuts and like, then Max Cherry's in the scene and then her and Ordell are in the scene and then her and Simone are in the scene or something like that where- Michael Keaton. Or Michael Keaton. And you're like, you can so clearly see that she uses the fact that people underestimate her because she's black or a woman 
or like underestimate her because for example like Ordell both of them are black but he underestimates her because he doesn't think that she's a very smart criminal yes so like her ability to act the way that people expect her to act in certain situations literally shows that she's smarter than everyone else and it's partly because she's had to do that her entire life I think that's like really obviously suggested but also just partly because she can read a room and make really quick decisions. Like when she steals the gun from Max Cherry off screen. Yeah. And then we realize as an audience, she did that because she knew Ordell was going to come looking for her. Right. Like that's good shit. And I, I, I just wanted like one more thing. I just wanted to point out a really good example of this about how she, like she always has a plan. Like that's her thing. And even if something happens, she's able to be flexible and change at a moment's notice and still come out on top. So I think, so I wanted to highlight at the very end, Max Cherry says like, what are you going to do now that you have this half a million dollars, whatever. And she goes, I think I'm going to go to Spain. Like, you know, maybe Barcelona, maybe I'll start there. Maybe I'll go to Madrid. She has a plan though. She's going to Europe. In the book, she's, oh, which by the way, so Max and Jackie run off together. That's kind of, a okay. difference between the book Let's, and the movie. I have something to say about that. Okay. After we'll mark you it. finish. Yeah, mark it. So at the very end, instead of having a plan, so Max asks, where would we go? And Jackie says, I don't know. Does it matter? And I feel like that kind of quippy stuff is not compelling. And like, it doesn't ring true for the character. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I just feel like that's a really good example of how smart they made her in the movie and how consistent the character is with always having a plan. But yeah. this character is just kind of like not interesting. So anyway, that right. that's that's like my textual example yes. of that. <laughs> Well, yeah, before we get to the character of Max Cherry, we can talk more broadly about the relationship between Jackie and Max. And this is why the movie makes you feel so good, because the heart of the movie is this relationship that grows between them. And in a lesser thriller, there would be a scene where they hook up or have and sex. And that happens in the fucking book. Right. So I think this shows Tarantino's maturity that they don't exactly. do that. And I'm not saying that simply showing sex is like inappropriate and that we're prudes. No, we're not saying that. We're saying that in the story, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense because they're both people who are at the, at the end of their rope. They're getting older, but they're not like old, old yet. But they realize they're in a point in their lives where they need to pull this plan off in order to, well have more money and have a good life right so there's no time for them to hook up and right. have a lovey relationship for there to be a sex scene this whole movie takes place within a week yeah. well a after the hearing then it's about a yeah. week so there's no time for to stop and then to have them bang it out like no let's let's be mature about this and just focus on the story and their quiet attraction is almost, I would say, even more sexier than to actually show sex. Yeah. The fact that they're so close to each other, clearly they're in love with each other. With each other. Well, Max is... Definitely in, Max. And I think at the very end, I think Jackie is too. Yes. Yeah. So this is why Robert Forster was nominated for an Oscar, because when his character sees Jackie Brown coming out of jail after yeah. he's paid her bond, you can tell just by the look that he's in love. Yeah. It seems simple for an actor to show love at first sight, but you don't realize until you watch a movie where it's done well how difficult it is to pull it off. Yeah. And so you know immediately through Robert Forrester's face that he's in love. And it's pretty hot, the, the fact that they're yeah. just so close to each other, but they don't kiss until the end. Another thing I'll say about Robert Forrester, I could watch a whole movie of him just talking about bonds <laughs> yeah. of talking to people and figuring out what the crime was what the judge set the bail at what he needs to do just the whole process like literally in two hours of him just writing bonds yeah and going to people's houses stunning them taking them to prison taking people out of prison you know you you talk about that it reminds me of the movie the verdict which yes. is a, again an, another super good movie that's based on a short story i'm not sure if we'll ever get around to it 
but it has Paul, it stars Paul Newman and it's a really slow legal case kind of movie. Yeah. One single case and court drama. That yeah. is extremely compelling. I feel like it could be maybe a little bit more of a dramatized version of that. Yeah. Um, but no, so I was going to respond to your point. Who are the two characters who do have sex in the movie? Lewis, Lewis and, and Melanie. Melanie, right? The immature characters who can't really do anything right <laughs> because they're driven by different things and ultimately like both of them are super immature. They're they're street smart yeah. ultimately, but like they're not driven by love. Anything anything sort of above themselves. They're super selfish. Yeah. And I think that highlights the fact that both Jackie and Max are more mature. They're much older, probably by a decade or more, I think, than both Lewis and especially Melanie. And they've been through the grind longer. And yeah. I think that that means that they're more mature about the consequences of them having sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's a perfect example. And, but they both, both couples have sex in the book and there's no grounds, again, there's not enough character development for Jackie and Max having a sexual relationship meaning anything. Yeah. Which is so crazy because in the movie, it's one of the most defined relationships I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, it, they do come off as partners. And yeah. I think that's why it works. Like you see that maybe they don't completely trust themselves to have a sexual relationship with someone else because yeah. they've both, again, they've been burned. Yeah. Like I don't I don't think that you need to have Max Cherry. God, there's this there's like three scenes where Max Cherry goes to visit his wife just to figure out whether or not he wants a divorce, even though they've been separated for like two uh, years. In the book. In the saying. book. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like I don't care. Like that's not something I need to know about. Even though it's not even it might not even be mentioned in the movie that he's been married and divorced. I don't think you need that. I, I think it's like kind of clear yeah. that he's been, if maybe not, if not married, you know, he's been in relationships where he's been burned and so has Jackie. And so like yeah. maybe until the very end when they kiss, they don't quite know if they can trust each other. Right. So, but yeah. I agree. There's, there's chemistry. And then in the very end when they kiss and then she walks away and he goes into the back and he's like, kind of like holds Thinking, his, yeah. his head like, oh, what did I do? Like, this could have been my last chance. And who knows? Maybe he will go to Madrid. Maybe, yeah, or maybe she'll come back. Who knows? But again, the maturity of the movie is allowing those characters to be true to who they developed into after yes. this whole caper. So, ugh. Love that. Love both of them. You won't, I mean, we kind Let's, of touched on Max Cherry, but yeah, well, I do you think, have anything else to say? No, I, I totally get his nomination. I... Wish he was nominated in a different year so he could have won because Robin Williams definitely deserved to win for yeah. <laughs> Goodwill Hunting. But anyways, uh, it's not your fault. Um, <laughs> line from the movie. All right. You had mentioned Lewis. Let's talk about him. So Ro oh my God. Robert De Niro Fantastic playing. Fantastic character. Yes. Playing against type. It's kind of crazy how this is the only Tarantino movie Robert De Niro has yeah. started. And you'd think there, you just think that there'd be more, but. Yeah. This is it. Playing against type as this loser ex-convict fresh out of prison for yeah. four years for um, bank robbery. But I don't think Tarantino is anti-marijuana. But there's this hilarious thread where Melanie more or less introduces bong smoking to, <laughs> to Lewis. And he ends up fully getting addicted and smoking all the time and he can't focus on anything until the actual day of the crime when he's sober but then he's over melanie's whole act and ends up you know killing her in the movie's most shocking moment yeah i would say if i hadn't read the book i would i mean even having read the book it was really shocking like they don't even i wish i was old enough to see this movie with a live audience yeah. when that happened because yeah. that's that shit's crazy. Yeah. How he just shoots her out of nowhere. In the middle of the day, in the middle of a parking lot, in uh, the middle of California. Like That is, you cannot tell me that anyone expected that. Right. And unfortunately, I had already known about that part yeah. when I watched it for the first time, just because it was such a popular moment of, of Tarantino. So I knew that happened, but crazy. I love the thread of 
Lewis, fresh out of prison, he thinks he's ready to join Ordell's whole crew and his operation. But really what he wants to do is just smoke all day and sit on the couch in Melanie's beach house. Yeah. That's real. He, he doesn't want to do this. Well, and not only that. Yeah, I, I totally think you're right. I think you're, he underestimates the, the, the fact that this is a different kind of crime than yes. he's used to. Because in the book, we get a lot more about Lewis, which is fine. But again, the book is called Rum Punch. And honestly, search me as to why exactly... There's kind of a thread about why the book is called that, but it's not very strong. But like this movie is called Jackie Brown. Yes. It's about her. It's and so again, like if they had just so if Leonard had just like not focused on other characters as much, the book would have been a lot better. But we hear so much about Lewis, his background and blah blah blah. And like he was never a violent crime offender. Mm-hmm. He would he would rob banks and he would use guns, but he had never really killed anyone. Mm-hmm. And Ordell at multiple times asks him in the movie, like, you're ready? Like, you, you can handle this? Yeah, like, you're good. He, like, checks in on him. And you can tell that he's, like, he's been in a life of crime. Like, Jesus Christ, he, he sees Beaumont dead in the trunk of his car and he just kind of, like, rubs his face. Like, that's yeah. kind of his only reaction. So, like, he he wants to be at that level of crime. But I think you're totally right. Like, he underestimates what he's gotten himself into. Yeah. Because Ordell trades, you know, AK-47s. Like, he, like, he imports extremely violent weapons and especially now i mean looking back like with the the level of gun violence in america like it's like he he imports extremely dangerous weapons yeah and i think you can just see that like lewis isn't at that level of crime sorry i kind of went on like a whole no, rant there but like I'm... he's he ordell checks in with him multiple times he just eventually he just doesn't get it and i think that killing melanie is like his He's probably at that level now, but he's behind in figuring out that Max and Jackie are working together, and that's ultimately why Ordell kills him. And like, I think that again shows the different levels of like what they're willing to, what they understand they're going to have to do yeah. to go through with these like massively quote unquote successful crimes. Yes. Well, to tie back to the thread of maturity, you could say that he kills Melanie because he's sick of her. He's yeah. In- immature. He doesn't. He's not necessarily a killer on instinct, but he's pushed to such a point. He's all this pressure to complete the mission because he knows Ardell is going to kill him if he doesn't. Yeah. So it's like kill or be killed here. And you're, you're pisses me off. So he kills her. Yeah. It also is just funny to see Robert De Niro in this role where he, he has very few lines. He's yeah. very silent. Of course, he's high all the time, but he's just kind of like, yeah, I'll do this, whatever. Yeah. He, he just kind of has Melanie this. Melanie asks him like, you want to fuck? And he's like, Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Fantastically understated. Like, I don't yes. think I've ever seen Robert De Niro act. I would say that he also earned a nomination here. Like you said, playing against type and embodying this loser character that I really believe is just out of prison yeah. and only had criminals to go back to. Exactly. Like, he was yeah. kind of set up. Did he have any other choice? Probably not. Like, he probably doesn't have any other friends to, right? you know, hang out with or connect with. And that ultimately leads to his massively violent death. Yeah. And it's even more impressive that Tarantino turned Robert De Niro, one of the most recognizable actors of all time, into a believable loser. Yeah. That's crazy that he did that. That's directing, right? I, that's directing <laughs> and writing. And, and acting, it, yeah. And, well, but, yes, but... yeah. Yeah, so that's that. So now we can move on to Ordell. So you had mentioned how Robert De Niro could have been nominated. Pim Greer obviously should have been nominated. Sam Jackson. What? He probably (laughs) would have been campaigned for best supporting, but he has enough screen time to be best actor level. Probably. But villains, I've noticed this. Villains, even when you have enough screen time, you normally put them in best supporting. That's just a thing that... Mm is about campaigning for uh, like you don't see villains normally there are a few exceptions like daniel day lewis and there will be blood but that he's an Heath ledger was he he's b- supporting he won for oh, supporting, supporting. Okay. for the joker yeah, yeah. posthumously um, unfortunately. Right. yeah but ordell 
so truly terrifying. And Tarantino establishes this with the aforementioned 25-minute prologue, I guess you could say, to the movie. So the movie starts with Jackie Brown and LAX, and you think, okay, this movie's going to start with her now. But then, nope, she's sidelined. A full 25 minutes setting up stakes. Again, the movies we love all about steaks. Steaks. It's you got to have steaks. Meat. Yes. Oh. Juicy meat. <laughs> S-T-E-K. Yeah, oh, steaks. Oh, yes. I thought you were mean metaphorical, the meat, but I get. Well, that too. Yes. Homonyms. Yes. <laughs> and in any other movie, this would be condensed down to like five minutes or ten minutes but this is a a whole episode of television here that you watch where one of ordell's workers beaumont is released and he's the one who ratted out jackie brown which you you learn that later but you get ordell's whole process someone who threatens his business is so weak that they'll make a deal with the cops so Ordell kills them before they can do They that. end up dead in a car. Right. So you... <laughs> That's his MO. So, a stolen car. <laughs> so bam, you, you get the stakes, which is why when it happens with Jackie Brown, when she's driving home with Max Cherry, the whole time you're thinking she's driving home to her death. Obviously, you know she's not going to die because she's the main character, but you're tense because you know what's exactly what's going to happen. So when she arrives home and then Ardell comes putting on the gloves, knocking on the door, that whole scene, you're holding your breath because you don't know when he's going to try to kill her, if he is going to. But Jackie Brown has a gun gun, and she goes, the reason I stole this gun because I was like, I knew you're going to kill me. And Ordell tries to play it off like, no, Jackie, like, I don't play like that. I just came to check in. Yeah. Yeah. And then then she's like, it's okay. I forgive you. Another great line. Um, I don't know if that was in the book, but just of her forgiving Ordell. How did Ordell change from the book, if anything, to the movie? I feel like it goes exactly with the pattern of what I've discussed earlier about all the characters. You get no background to Ordell. You don't get a lot, to be fair, in the movie. He's just kind of a major criminal player. But I personally just didn't see a lot of development. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he couldn't keep up with Jackie, I didn't necessarily buy in the book. Because again, Jackie wasn't set up as someone necessarily up to messing with him mm-hmm. and his plans so i don't have much to say other than the fact that he was underdeveloped and underwritten and i think the writing of his quote-unquote like black american dialect what i thought that was racist and it, it distracted me from the plot because i was like this old white guy is making assumptions about how these people talk I, I, well just this weird. brings up an interesting argument so how does tarantino get away with it because when he wrote something like django unchained there was some pushback there of saying why does he get to tell this story yeah i have a question you know if you read the script is it written in a way that would suggest the kind of character that would be playing it that's tough because he wrote the script he wrote that character specifically for Samuel L. Jackson. And Samuel L. Jackson, so this is a fun fact, this is the his favorite movie that he starred in with Tarantino. So Sam mm-hmm. Jackson has been in, what, I want to say six or seven of Tarantino's movies. But this is his favorite of those. Interesting. Yeah, so I think the problem is that, number one, I don't think that Leonard collaborated with anyone. Number two, there's so much evidence from other characters who are like blanket described as like Latino looking, quote unquote, and like black looking, quote unquote, where I think that he doesn't have the, I guess, like respect to mm-hmm. develop characters that are, and, and even the fact that the characters aren't very well developed shows me that he doesn't have like a respectful way of approaching this. Like mm-hmm. he's not coming with any experience except for like generalizations. Uh-huh. And that, I guess that's, a mu- that's as much Tarantino as But I... Tarantino also isn't though. But he didn't collaborate with anybody to write the script? No, because he, maybe on set during the day, but he writes his script. He wrote Pulp Fiction with Robert Avery, 
But this, he had started to write with Robert Avery, then they split. So he wrote the script on his own, or okay. adapted it on his own. Well, okay, so, like, I can't, like, this is not something that I can necessarily judge because I'm not black. But I just think that, like, if you're reading a book, even if you're reading a book that a black person has written, they don't write stuff. Or, 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 uh, there's, there's a minor character in here that's supposed to be again just from like latin america mm -hmm. and he speaks in broken english mm -hmm. and that's uh, mm -hmm. not super respectful i think you know what i mean so like yeah. if you i don't know see I, like i can't come down on the movie i don't know and maybe tarantino was wrong to be writing the way that he does but it's just hard for me to like read that in a book nowadays written by like an old white guy and, and not be distracted by how racist it comes across. The book suffers mm -hmm. because I think it's written with a perspective of a lot of generalizations. Right. And I think that comes across in the way that he writes characters, dialogue. That's right. all I'm saying. And, it, and Tarantino, conversely, doesn't write characters with generalizations because his characters are like the most memorable people who feel three-dimensional and it's respectful in a way he you know there's been instances in his previous films where it's been problematic for sure i mean his scene in pulp fiction i don't know if you remember that okay i won't go into it because you'll be triggered but he is i'm, I'm just i so i'm not getting into a conversation about tarantino because gotcha. i don't know enough to say what his I do. <laughs> development process is. Yes. But I would say if there's someone who's white not working with someone of color or of someone who's gone through a certain situation that's historically been marginalized, it's not very respectful to assume that they're uneducated. Yes. And that's why they do what they do. <laughs> yes. That, that's all I'm saying. I cannot defend the book and I found it not enjoyable. That's all I'm saying. Gotcha. So that bled into Ordell's character. Mm -hmm. So I didn't find that a very three-dimensional development for him. Yeah. I think that he's really well-developed in the movie. I think Samuel L. Jackson is fantastic. I don't know who came up with his hair <laughs> design. But even that is like weird and kind of makes you like wonder like what the fuck makes him like fucking braid his yeah, he's, goatee he's an anakin skywalker rat tail on yeah, his chin but you know what's so weird though is like it's so distracting that it's almost like a hypnotic mechanism yeah because i i found myself being so drawn to that ugly hair and the and the mm -hmm. goatee that i was like is this like a strategy that he uses to like not make people hear what he's saying but just like wonder why he's doing what he's doing with his hair mm -hmm. it's super distracting right right i don't know if that's like a character trait but like it's just a weird thing that i felt like consistently distracted by yeah, it's super weird super ugly but it adds to the iconic uniqueness of tarantino's characters yeah. and tapping into that theme of characters being over it by the end of the movie when ordell realizes that all his money is with jackie brown in her hands ordell is now over it so instead of wearing the beret that yeah. he does the he's no, importantly, it's a kangle. A kangle? No, those were so popular in the nineties. Those no, no, ass what, ugly. What's the term? A, a kegel? Kangle. Kangle. Like they're gotcha. like the, there's, I, there's an SNL sketch about these. They're like, like they're like an imported hat from Australia. I know what they look like. I didn't know the yeah, term. There's like a whole because they were so they're so goddamn ugly, and everybody used to wear them. Uh -huh. Some people still wear them. I don't think they look that good, but <laughs> yeah. But by the end of the movie, he's over it. So he just lets his hair out and he's sweating. He's just over it. He's not maintaining himself. And with that long ride to Jackie Brown when she's in Max Cherry's office and Max Cherry is driving, you know, sitting in the passenger seat alongside Ardell. Ordell is the hair's just flowing in the wind. They're listening to the Delphonics. I think Ordell subconsciously realizes that he's probably driving to his death. Yeah. Yeah, it perfectly fits with the theme yeah so that that's ordell any other characters we want to oh yes michael, michael keaton, keaton. yes <laughs> was, i was gonna say we Love could probably michael like keaton. put the final dollop on this episode by talking about the cops yeah uh so the funny thing about the book 
is that I was really bothered by the fact that the cops were so bland. They were so uninteresting. And it, it was like, they were the least developed characters of them all. Mm. They were just these like cardboard fucking cutouts of cops that I didn't believe could go up against Ordell. I, I was just like, I don't fucking care about these people. They're yeah. both like, again, just like, fucking yeah. stock characters right so the fact that i had no idea that michael keaton was in here he walks into the room and i'm like okay now we get a little bit of fun he's great he's so funny i love how tarantino changed the i don't know the strategy of filming him he always films him like walking toward the camera and the camera kind of like matches his stock i don't know yeah. how he, he My, kind michael of like sways keaton, he sways his head yeah right and he's Michael Keaton is known for like his, his eyebrows. eyebrows. Right, yeah. So Iconic. The, the camera sways with his eyebrow movement. It's crazy. Oh, yeah, 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 that yeah. That makes sense, yeah. So I love his character. It feels real, certainly unique. They give him a motorcycle and so a cool leather jacket. That's what I was going to say too. Like it's so fucking funny that he's this like casual cop. Yeah. And I don't know if that's kind of a put on like to make people feel more comfortable around him. But you really believe that he drives a motorcycle. He has croquis around his Oakleys <laughs> and a yeah. motorcycle jacket. And he's kind of consistently carrying a helmet. And I think that just, we never, I don't even know if we ever see him riding a motorcycle. No, but it just gives him some character. Yeah. Like do that in the book. There are just these like two photocopied white guys who are cops in the book. And that's it. Well, my the funniest scene in the movie is when Michael Keaton is his character is Ray and they're doing the test run of the uh, money exchange in yeah. the mall. And so he's describing the bag that they're going to use and he's going into extreme detail because he's so thorough and wants to do this. And they're all he keeps on saying that the bag is yes. purple, but there's a purple character on it. But the bag is white and both. Jackie Brown and his fellow, uh, the fellow cop. Forgettable, um, yeah. honestly. I don't even know why they have that second cop. Mark, well, the, you got to have a good cop, bad cop in there. And he was like the bad. <sighs> I, I guess. I, I thought he'd forgettable. I don't know, well, you need the reason why Jackie communicates with Ray more than the, the other is because she not trusts Ray, but knows that Ray can help with her plan because he raised the good cop. And Mark, the other cop, is is the hard ass. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the the funny scene is when he's trying to describe the bag, but they're saying they're pushing him to get on with it. Right. But he's he's so thorough and he's so committed to being an ATF agent that he just won't let it go. Well, and, he, and another moment of that is when he's marking the bills and he's like, "I have a green felt tip marker, and I yeah. am." Marking the bill in the upright left corner. (laughs) If anybody hasn't seen the movie, but if you've watched the show Monk, it's a Randy Disher moment. (laughs) It's it's, like you were saying, just trying so hard to embody being a cop that Uh, you end up making a fool out of yourself. Is that Ted Levine's character? No, it's played by Jason Gray Stanford. Ted Levine is the captain. He's like the no-nonsense captain. Randy is kind of an idiot. Gotcha. (laughs) He's, I mean, it's good cop, bad cop. Right. To be honest. Yeah, exactly what you were saying. But anyway, Randy Disher moment. Yeah. So in conclusion, watch this movie and let's rank. Oh, let's do our Tarantino rankings. Tarantino rankings. Just super quick. Yeah. I can go first. But um, disclaimer, I have not seen Reservoir Dogs, Kill Bill 1 and 2, or Death Proof. So those do not appear on my list. But starting from last to first, The Hateful Eight, tell me why that's a movie. I fucking hated it. It's a terrible movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know why anybody would defend it. Um, Then goes, I'm sorry, but Pulp Fiction. I just didn't get it. Hmm. Um, Okay. (laughs) And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really liked it, but it was a little too slow for me. Of course, it's really fun to see Los Angeles. We basically see almost the place where we live uh, in the footage, but I don't know, just a little too slow for me. Then Django Unchained. I really love that movie. So the top three are really hard to rank for me. They're interchangeable probably based on which I've seen last. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyway, my last three are Django Unchained, Jackie Brown, and then of course, 
the crowning glory and glorious bastards. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I watched that opening scene with Christoph Waltz and Danae Minoche weekly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that's, it's the best opening scene of any movie in existence. Um, might be the best scene of any movie in existence. Yeah. So anyway, that's my number one. All right. Well, I have seen all of Tarantino's movies. Shocker. <laughs> right. But yeah, bottom of the list, Hateful Eight. Yeah, don't like that movie. And then Death Proof. I mean, it, it's all right, but it's kind of self-indulgent and don't really get into the action until the second half. Um, not a lot of substance either. Then Django Unchained, a little bit of a hot take, but I think that movie's way too long. Um, it's kind of, I guess that's a simple criticism, but there it is. <laughs> then Kill Bill Volume 2. Then, yeah, Kill Bill Volume 1, both solid. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, number three. Nice. Then Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. So Nice. And those are listed on your letterboxd, right? Are yep. those ranked? Yes. Yeah, it's ranked on my letterboxd. Please follow me if you're on letterboxd. My handle is at Danny G Reviews. Nice. And uh, you can find us on social media. At film underscore is underscore lit underscore pod. And you know what? I want to start engaging with our audience. After we post an episode, I'm going to post a question and we would love to hear your answers and then to respond to them on the next episode. So the question we're going to post after this episode drops on our Instagram is what's your favorite Tarantino movie and why? That's a good one. Another announcement that I completely forgot to do at the beginning of the episode, even though I said I was going to remember, I purchased this book at Village Well Books and Coffee in Culver City. It's such a great bookstore, and we've started to order a bunch from them. So check them out. It's super cute, and uh, we love to support local um brick and mortar shops Amen. so check them out yep so four to four for the movie yeah and i would honestly say like one out of four this was this was such an unenjoyable read for me dang one out of four copy that well thanks for listening we will be back in two weeks for our coverage on the underground railroad so that's gonna be fun but uh Score composed by nicholas Bertel. yeah but uh yes we're gonna be off for a week because next week we're recording an episode with our friends from secondhand film critics so that's gonna be fun yeah can't wait for that all right we'll see you on the next one